0: Wow. Oh my goodness. That is too much. You all are really too kind. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad to be with you guys really and, and so many of you uh, being here. It's just it's great to see you tonight and we're so thankful that you're here at Kindred. We kind of had this uh, there's actually this unspoken uh, agreement that we had come to that actually I don't think Lindsay ever agreed to this specifically but when we first started uh, getting going with Kidred, we both were joking, because she actually, surprisingly, has a really great singing voice. And uh, you can ask her to sing for you later, she would love that. Um, And we came to this agreement that if I ever taught, it would also be the same week that she would come and lead worship, so we would switch. So the last song tonight is led by Whitney, and not Lindsay, because she bailed. But I don't know, we'll, we'll see what happens, maybe someday. But uh, yeah, I'm so glad to be with you guys. And uh, as, as Zach and Lindsay were saying, my name's Tommy, I'm our worship pastor here. Um, if you're new here, I know we'd, uh, we'd love to meet you. And so uh, feel free to, to come and grab one of us. We'll be in the lobby or in the auditorium after the service, we'd love to get to know you. So as many of you know, we've been walking through this book of Genesis together over the last uh, couple months, and uh, for a bit of insight, Zach Lindsay and I always meet together once a week or so, and we'll talk through uh, messages that are coming up, what they're going to be talking about soon, or, or how we're going to plan these services. And during this study of Genesis, I can't tell you how many times I've heard some version of like... Man, this is just crazy stuff. I don't know how we're going to teach this. Like, what are we going to do about this? Or why did this part fall on my week? I want Lindsay to teach on that. That's Zach. Um, And my joke with them always ends up being like, yeah, guys, man, you should talk to the people who like put this kindred thing together and like get them to switch the weeks you're talking or anything like that. It's them. Anyway, in all seriousness, uh, yeah, I'm just so thankful that we've been studying through this book of Genesis because it's been so informational for me, I know. uh, And it's really helped me see a lot of uh, that stuff in a new light. And Zach and Lindsay had just done such a wonderful job teaching that. And uh, if it's something that you have missed out on, I really encourage you to go back and check out our podcast or our YouTube videos and uh, catch up because they're really, really great. So last week, Lindsay walked us through this story of Jacob And Jacob has this wrestling match with God. He wrestles with him all night. And at daybreak, he says, uh, like, let's break this up. It's daybreak. And Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And God agrees. And he gives Jacob uh, this new name and a blessing. And, And this new name that he gives him is Israel. And Israel literally means wrestles with God. So uh, that leads us to this point where we're picking up today, it's in Genesis 37, and there's a few scriptures that we uh, are about to read that use both of those names, that use uh, Jacob and Israel, and so we know from that story it's referring to the same person. So for our sakes tonight, I'm going to use the name Jacob, but we'll pick up in uh, Genesis 37, it's the beginning of this focus on Jacob and his many sons uh, that actually comprises the rest of the book of Genesis. So, that's where we're going to begin tonight. The verses are actually going to be up on the screens, or they're on your digital programs, which are on the QR codes on the back of your seats. So, uh, Genesis 37:1 says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their uh, father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So this passage wastes like no time jumping straight into the family dysfunction and the dynamic that's taking place uh, among Jacob and his sons. So firstly, this passage mentions uh, that Jacob has multiple wives, and it's worth talking about for a moment because it's important to the story and to our context. So polygamy is not the way of God's people. Uh, If you go back to Genesis 1 through 3, there's no precedent for marrying multiple women or having multiple wives. But what we see here is God's people navigating their ancient world and borrowing some of the practices and customs uh, that were prevalent in the culture at the time. So uh, while polygamy is not God's intention for us, we see Jacob giving into this norm of his surroundings, and thus he has multiple wives. So, uh, and we see this idea of giving into societal norms all over the place still, even now. It's, it's maybe not polygamy in our Western society, uh, but around plenty of other things. So Jacob has multiple wives and this passage says he's fathered children from each of them and one of these sons is Joseph, who isn't exactly getting off to the best start because he's tending sheep with his brothers from other mothers and he goes home and he tattles to dad. He brings them a bad report, which is kind of not the right foot to start off with. Tack onto that, uh, Jacob has this special fatherly love for Joseph that he does not have for his other sons. So not only is Jacob showing a special favor toward Joseph, he's making it loud and clear that he is, out of all the sons, Joseph is the favorite. And he's communicating it so clear that there's this hierarchy, at Joseph's at the top, that he's, he, he gives him this coat as like a symbol that he is his favorite. So he's completely unashamed about this, which is so interesting to me because like parents, that's kind of messed up, right? Does that, like, does that story make you cringe a little bit, picking a favorite and being like, here's a coat, it's you. And the rest are like, cool, thanks, dad. Um, I'm the youngest of three boys, and I legit I, I cannot imagine how I'd feel if my dad uh, made it loud and clear that one of my brothers was the favorite over me. Uh, maybe that's something that some of you have actually experienced, but there's no doubt in my mind that I would, actually, I would be crushed if my dad did that. And I'd become super jealous of my brother, and knowing myself, I'd constantly be trying to make my dad notice me and approve of me, and it'd probably be this never-ending pursuit of something I was never going to get. And we undoubtedly see this dynamic start to play itself out in the Joseph story, because Jacob's favoritism naturally creates this animosity from the brothers toward Joseph, And that animosity is rooted in this desire to obtain their father's blessing or favor. And interestingly enough, this is a theme we've actually seen multiple times in the book of Genesis. And ironically, we most recently saw it uh, with Jacob, the father, pretending to be his brother Esau to obtain his father's blessing. So the apple doesn't fall very far in this tree, in this family. Uh, In fact, we see this, this preferential treatment And all three patriarchs of this family has only led to discord and war. Uh, And as we pan down to Joseph's brothers, they don't have this favor. They don't have this blessing from their father, Jacob, or at least they don't feel like they have it. And as the story continues, things uh, just get crazier. So let's read on. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. While your chiefs gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. All right, so Joseph's obviously not trying to fit in here. Uh, he's had these dreams of his entire family bowing down to him, and he shares it openly with his brothers and his father. And at this point, it seems like all he's doing is just stirring the pot. It's just creating more and more animosity and hatred amongst his brothers. And I actually don't think that the brothers' hatred is entirely due to their shortcomings because Joseph is presenting these dreams with this arrogance. It's almost like he's rubbing it in. It's like the stars bow down to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm the favorite. You're not. See my coat? So Joseph's not entirely blameless here. He's, he's really rubbing it in. And the way that he's acting, it's just fanning the flames of what we see mentioned in the last verse of that passage. His brothers were jealous of him. Plain and simple, his brothers were just full of jealousy and envy for the approval and praise that Joseph was receiving from their father, Jacob. The kind of approval that they desired, but they weren't receiving. And it appears as though now the brothers are all uniting together and they're channeling this collective jealousy and hatred toward Joseph and it's starting to fester and it's starting to push the brothers further down this rabbit hole of hatred and jealousy. As the story continues, Joseph's brothers, they go to tend their flocks and Jacob asks Joseph to go check on them and Joseph obeys his father and heads out to find them. And then we read this. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Yikes, guys. That that escalated quickly. (laughs) So... Jacob tells Joseph to go find his brothers and check on him. Joseph is obedient to his father, which is actually something that we'll see is true to the core about Joseph. He's one of the most obedient characters in the Bible. Uh, he finally tracks his brothers down, and when he's approaching, his brothers see him and they start taunting him to each other. Here comes that dreamer. It makes me think of like kids on the playground. Na, 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 the dreamer. And this taunting, though, it's it's actually a double-edged sword on one side that taunting uh, of, that the brothers perhaps believed Joseph was dishing when he was telling about his dreams, they're now dishing that right back to him. And on the other side, they're doing this in an attempt to just cut straight down to the core of who Joseph is and his identity. But after this taunting, they, they really dial it up to 10 and say, come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him in the cistern, which is basically just this old school water tank. Then we'll lie to our dad and say that it was a ferocious animal that ate him. Ferocious. Interestingly, they're, they're planning on carrying out this classic cover-up scenario, and not in the sense of covering up their murder for Joseph, but it's, it's, this actual, it's this tendency that we find ourselves struggling with all the time, and that is to cover up sin with more sin. In order for them to get away with murdering their brother, they have to stack a lie on top of it. And it's impossible to cover up sin with God's truth and the way that he instructs us to live because God's truth will always reveal sin. And if that's true, then the only way to cover up sin is with more sin. And compounding sin only adds to the snowball that tumbles downhill and leads to destruction. So when we sin, we realistically have two choices. We can admit our sin to God and we can ask for grace, which he gives us freely because of Jesus. Or we can cover up that sin with more sin and more sin and more sin and let the snowball roll and grow and destroy. And unfortunately, the the second choice is what we see Joseph's brothers making. The envy and the jealousy amongst them has driven them to this really dark place because they're compelled not just to physically hurt their brother, but to kill him. And in this case, uh, the original sin of the brothers is envy And if you let envy take its course, it can lead to this inner rottenness that Solomon writes about in Proverbs when he says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And that's exactly what we see happening with Joseph's brothers. It's rotted their core to the point that they'd rather be willing to to kill their brother out of envy than anything else. And clearly, this lens of jealousy, is it's even gone so far as to cloud their ability to discern right and wrong. It's like it's blinded them to the point where their morals no longer seem to matter. But luckily, in the story, there's a a voice of reason, and it's in the oldest brother, Reuben. It says this, When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness and don't lay a hand on him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the orno, ornate robe he was wearing, which is the symbol of their, their jealousy. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. So thankfully, the, the oldest brother, Reuben, isn't completely rotten. It's him who steps in and tries to save Joseph from the rest of the brothers. And interestingly enough, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't completely oppose them and stand with Joseph Uh, So it stands to reason that Reuben may have found himself somewhere between his own jealousy of Joseph, the fear of the consequences of killing him, and his own responsibility as the oldest brother to look out for his siblings. Uh, But at the very least, he's successful enough in convincing the brothers to spare Joseph's life, so they toss him into this empty cistern, and the story continues. As they sat down to eat their meal, okay, pause for a second. This verse seems so nonchalant to me because they just conspired to murder their brother and then they have lunch. They were hungry. Like, oh, this murder talks made us <laughs> famished. Let's make some sandwiches, Reuben. And thus, Reuben sandwiches. Yep, you, I get one dad joke. Don't clap. <laughs> You'll only encourage me. <laughs> but that's my quota for the night. Okay, I digress. As they sat down to eat their meal. Now this feels too serious. I'm sorry. Okay. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all... He is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Isn't that nice? That's going to be on a Hallmark card here in Christmas. How, like, how noble of Judah that he would say, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery for money that we can split. Like, and since we didn't kill him, then that's the way that we'll rationalize that we were actually merciful and did the honorable thing, even though we hate him and he deserves worse. Like... Judah is obviously delusional because somewhere in his envy, he has likely come to believe that Joseph is deserving of death. And therefore, by sparing him to a marginally better fate, he's being noble and merciful. And this is exactly what can happen to us when we let jealousy take its course. It can lead us to dehumanize those that we are jealous of and even to decide that they're deserving of evil. It completely blinds us to our own sin and hypocrisy and creates this world that we uh, only see through this tainted lens of envy. How many of us are guilty of this? I know I am. I mean, for instance, like one moment we're looking at their Instagram again and the next moment we're tearing them apart in the comments. Or one second we're showing someone this facade of kindness to their face and the next we're destroying their character to others behind their back. None of us are immune to this, and I know that I've treated some people with contempt because they were more uh, musically talented than I was, or they were more athletic than I was, or even smarter than I was. And that's not the way that God has designed us to live, especially if we believe that we belong to each other. Now, the chapter finishes with this. says so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for twenty shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. Now, tearing your clothes in this time period, uh, it signified this immense grief or uh, sadness from loss. So that's what you would do: you tear your clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So the end of this chapter, it starts to show us the fallout of the brother's hatred and the jealousy toward Joseph. And luckily, it is just the beginning of Joseph's story, because as we'll see, God has some pretty incredible plans left for him in the book of Genesis, and we'll see more of that next week. But the consequences of the brothers' actions in this chapter are undeniable. They were so jealous of Jacob's love for Joseph that it's only by grace that he wasn't killed. And it's that envy that was the root of many other sins that were committed by the brothers, namely lying, deception, and hatred. And consequently, their jealousy and sin had caused massive destruction from Joseph being betrayed by his family and sold into slavery to the immeasurable toll of sin and hatred on the hearts of the brothers to the needless slaughtering of this goat to cover it up to the inconsolable mourning and anguish that Jacob felt after hearing the lie that his son Joseph was dead. Jacob was so distraught that his sons who had been pining for his approval were not even able to console him in his grief even when they tried. And you have to wonder how that would feel for them after all they'd done to gain his approval and now they can't even assuage his anguish. So we may look at Joseph's brothers and think like, yeah, well, I, would, I would never do that. I'm not gonna kill anybody. And odds are you're probably right. But in reality, it's actually not all that hard to imagine You see, jealousy can breed all kinds of evil, and one of the most fertile soils for envy is the playing field of the comparison game. And I think it's safe to say that we've all played the comparison game at one time or another. It's easy enough to do in our immediate surroundings, and it's even easier to do on our phones. And tell me if this sounds right. The game goes something like this. Wow, they have a lot of nice things. Like, why don't I have money like them? Or, wow, he seems so well-liked by everyone, how come I can't be like him? Or, wow, she's so thin, how come I can't look like her? And when we play the comparison game, inevitably the malicious justifications can follow that. Yeah, like, sure, they have nice things, but I bet they're drowning in debt. Or, yeah, people like him, but I'm sure he's like a terrible person behind closed doors. Or, yeah, yeah she's skinny, but I'm sure she doesn't eat anything. And it's easy to see how the comparison game starts rotting the bones even one level down. And if you play this game long enough and you dive deep enough, the destruction it causes increases exponentially, and not just on the person or thing that's the object of the jealousy, but on the jealous person themselves even more so. You see, we can play the comparison game. And we can unknowingly force someone else into the game with us, but there are no winners in the comparison game. Comparison breeds jealousy, which left unchecked leads to deep hatred, resentment, depression, self-loathing, and a complete loss of identity, happiness, and security. As Theodore Roosevelt once said, comparison is the thief of joy. And in our text tonight, the comparison game that Joseph's brothers played pitted themselves against Joseph in a struggle for their father's approval. And earlier I mentioned this is a theme in Abraham's family, this longing for the blessing and the favor of the father. And this desire is likely something that we've all experienced, to be called a son or a daughter, to be fully known or treated with unconditional love to be instructed how to live our lives. I can't say I blame the brothers at all for wanting that. I felt the same thing, but at the end of the day, here's the beautiful thing about this. We can spend all the time in the world working tirelessly for the approval of our father or a mother or of others, exhaustively striving to show ourselves and others that we're worthy of love and that we deserve affection and admiration and, and merit. And that it's maybe even something we can claim and take pride in because maybe then we might be enough. And maybe then we might be admired like Jacob admired Joseph. But the fact is we already do have a father. We have a father that loves us and he's an everlasting father in heaven who's also called mighty God, prince of peace, a wonderful counselor. There's nothing you could do to earn his love because he's already shown it to you before you could have ever tried to earn it. And he loves you so much that he died for you while you were still broken and before you ever believed in him. And that's not something that we can earn. But he does invite us into this child uh, sonship freely. For I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In Psalms it says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And John puts it this way see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I love the exclamation points in that. That is what we are. And in view of these truths, we now have security in our identity, in who we are, that we are sons and daughters of the most high God. We are deeply loved, we were created with a purpose. And we are known by a heavenly father who knows us so well that he could tell us the amount of breaths we've breathed or the heartbeats we've had in our lifetimes. So if we know who we are and we know whose we are, we have purpose, we have identity, and therefore we have a heart at peace. And that's exactly what Solomon prescribed as this antidote to jealousy in the proverb that we read earlier, a heart at peace Gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So you see, the antidote to jealousy is the peace that comes with knowing who you are in Christ. The antidote to jealousy is the peace that comes with knowing who you are in Christ. It comes with knowing that you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus and that you belong to Him, that even the God of the universe, creator of heavens and and the earth, welcomes you into his family with open arms and there's nothing you can do to ever take that away so as a reminder of this truth has put together uh, this graphic that you can download from our social media either facebook or instagram and it's this graphic of that verse uh, that we had just looked at it's first john 3 1 it says see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of god and that is what we are and it's our hope and our prayer that uh, you can download that and you can put it on your, your phone as your lock screen as a hope and a prayer, and it, it, as, as a reminder that you're chosen uh, and that you were created with a purpose and that you're loved by your Father in heaven who, who calls you his son and his daughter. Kindred, would you stand with us? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, God. We praise you for your goodness and we praise you for how you love us. And God, in in times where the enemy will come after us and will try and get into our hearts and make us jealous, God, we pray that you would just remind us what you say about us, that you say we're chosen and, and we're not forsaken, that we're a child of God. We are your sons and daughters. And we praise you for that, God. We thank you that you loved us while we were still sinners and that you continue to pursue us in amazing ways, God. We praise you with our lives. And we're thankful for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.